We're in Ephesians chapter 4 again this morning, looking at what God has to say for us as we put off the old man, put on the new man in regards to theft. And so, I'm going to again read the passage starting in verse 17. This is God's word, it is eternally true. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about Him. And we're taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old man, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new man, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth to his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let's ask for God's help this morning. Father, we pray that the meditations of our hearts and the words of my lips would be pleasing in your sight, and that you would help us this morning. In Christ's name, amen. These passages here about putting on the new man, taking off the old man. Talked about how it's both the Ten Commandments, kind of the last half of the Ten Commandments, fleshed out. What does it mean to love one another? It means to tell the truth. It means to not be angry and murder. It means not to steal. Um, And then last week I mentioned that Satan is the one who is a thief and a liar and a murderer. And he has been from the beginning. And so these are also an explanation of the old man as he is under the power and dominion of Satan. And the new man who is under the power and dominion of Christ. And so these are two ways, I think, both helpful in looking at this passage. And as we think about what it means for the thief no longer to steal... Um, again, it's very easy for us to, to quickly pass over these verses and think that we are not thieves, we are not liars, we are not murderers, we are not angry. And I hope that as God speaks to us, we'll realize that there is actually a lot of things in our lives that are, we're actually quite guilty of um, that we don't think about very often and that we tend not to think are that big of a deal. It's interesting that when Paul puts in contrast the old man and the new man here with stealing, he gives two different things as far as the new man is concerned. He gives both honest work and giving as the new man. And almost all of us would understand exactly what he means by honest work, working with your hands. uh, That makes sense to us. In fact, that's just worldly wisdom in many ways. Uh, All of us can see that To be lazy and expect to be paid is a ridiculous notion. Um, And yet, it's by far one of the best and most, not best, but one of the most common ways that people steal is by expecting payment for nothing. They want 
something for themselves without having to give of themselves anything as, re- as God requires of us. This is not a new phenomenon. I mean, this is 2,000 years ago, but here is Martin Lloyd-Jones writing about 75 years ago, or preaching 75 years ago, and he says this, The moment you begin to regard work as something degrading, you are on a slippery slope. The moment you fail to see the dignity of work and the essential rightness of work, the moment you begin to think in terms of having rather than truly and honestly earning, you are beginning to open the door that will lead to some form of dishonesty. Possession should never be the supreme position. The mere having, the mere gaining, the mere enjoying is never to be the supreme thing. A society, a country, a world which begins to despise labor and effort is proclaiming that it is godless. Any failure to realize the dignity of work proclaims the same thing. The whole notion of obtaining the maximum and giving or doing the minimum is utterly irreligious. It is profoundly unchristian. But who can deny that it is something that is affecting every stratum of society? 75 years ago in Britain. How much more so now? And this is always the way it is. There is always a selfishness to the way men seek to earn. And that really is the root of what's going on with thieves. Stealing. It's selfish. And it's not just selfish when you take the candy bar from the gas station or when you embezzle millions from the company. It is selfish all the time when you have any no thought for those who are outside of you. In fact, even when God commands us to work, as in places like First Timothy, where he says, if a man does not provide for his own family, he is worse than an unbeliever. Think about the context there. It doesn't say if a man doesn't work, he's worse than an unbeliever. If a man does not provide for his own family, even when God clearly tells us we have to work hard, it is never in the context of gaining for ourselves, but providing for others. Work is not the accumulation of goods for your toil. And this is the profoundly different thing. This is the moment where you become Christian or not Christian the way you work. We can all agree with a basic maxim that if you don't work, you don't eat. But what is the Christian maxim that comes is the new man. And this is where it becomes impossible. This is where it becomes actually unachievable. There are a lot of self-help books on the shelf. There are lots of men you you can go to to give you seven tips, seven things, this, that, the other. Ways to work in which you can earn. And they're all utterly pagan if they do not have at the end what Paul says, which is so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. The Christian work is not just not stealing. And it's not just hard-working to earn. It is selfless hard-working to earn. It is, in fact, aiming for giving work. And this is utterly foreign to 
every kind of mantra that there is as far as hard work goes. Hard work is so that you may accumulate so that you don't have to work later. Right? There's this, there's this growing trend um, in my age bracket especially of retiring early. And what that means is working very hard at a high-paying job, trying to live on as little as possible, saving as much as you can, putting it in the stock market so you can retire at 35 or 40 and have enough in the stock market so that it pays you back so you don't have to work anymore the rest of your life and you can go enjoy the world. That is a pagan view of work. Work is, in fact, commanded by God from the very beginning It's not new. It didn't come with the fall. It is what God said to Adam in the garden. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had sprung up, for the Lord God had to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. If there was no man to work the ground... And then God made the man and planted a garden for him and planted the man in the garden. His job was to work the ground. This is also God's word to man. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Dominion, subduing, working are all before the fall. Before the fall. Work is good. It was commanded by God to Adam in the garden for his good. Now, the fall changed that. When Adam was cursed... Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. You shall eat the plants of the field and by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. The curse made work difficult. But work was always a Christian ideal. In the garden, before the fall, God had given Adam and Eve, man, a job to work the ground, to subdue it, to have dominion over it. It's no longer easy as it would have been had they not fallen. It's hard to say exactly what work would have been like for Adam and Eve before the fall. We don't know. It's not a lot of descriptions of what the life in the garden looked like. And equally, there are not a lot of descriptions of what heaven and the work of heaven will be like. But we can be assured that we will not be idle in heaven. Idleness is, in fact, ungodliness. This is true from the beginning. It's true all through Scripture. It's true through Proverbs Whenever the end comes for you and for me, when we meet the Lord, when He returns, we will not just be like floating in the clouds, doing nothing for the rest of eternity. We will be doing, we will be working, 
What it will look like, how it will be, it's very hard to say. I don't know. But it will not be idle times. So then back down to earth. What is theft? What is the old man? How do we put him away? One of the ways that we steal is that we don't think of and lend and give freely. So in the Westminster longer, uh, larger catechism, what are required in the Eighth Commandment, and it gives this, giving and lending freely according to our abilities and the necessity of others. In the book of Zechariah, the word of the Lord of hosts came to Zechariah and said, Say to all the people of the land and the priests, When you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and in the seventh, for these seventy years was it for me that you fasted? And when you eat and when you drink, do you not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? Were not these the words the Lord proclaimed by the former prophets when Jerusalem was inhabited and prosperous with cities around her and the south and the lowland were inhabited? And the word of the Lord came to Zechariah saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor. And let none of you devise evil against one another in your heart. God grounds His command to be generous with one another in Zechariah in the idea that we ought to work as unto the Lord. And what does it mean to work unto the Lord and not steal? Everything is the Lord's. Everything, right? We forget this. It's easy to forget. But God made everything. It belongs to Him. It is His by right. Now, He has the power to enforce that however He wills. But He also has the absolute right to determine it. Because He is the Maker. We have all kinds of laws in our country about copyright and that sort of thing, that if you made the product, you can sell the product, and you can gain profit from it. It's yours. Nobody else can infringe upon it. It's yours by right. It's a copyright. And some of those laws are ridiculous, but some of them are very, very helpful. If a man invents a machine, and he is the inventor of it, he ought to, by rights, have some benefit from it. He shouldn't have to just give it away. He can give it away. If he so wills, he may give it away. God owns the entirety of all things. He made them. And so what are we in comparison to God? We are stewards. We are not owners. We are not makers. This stuff that we do, we do not inherently own We have everything we have by the gift and hand of God. Therefore, everything we get through the things that we have are God's. They are His. They are not ours. And so the main way that we must fight against theft is by keeping in mind all the time that everything we gain 
is God's. Every dollar, every minute, every moment are God's. They are not ours. We are not free to do whatever we would like. We are free to do as our master, our owner, has commanded us. Now, there's lots of good reason why things like the five-day work week came into being. But if you remember God's command to us, it is, For six days you shall labor, and on the seventh day you will rest. It's a command to labor. And this doesn't mean you have to labor by going to a nine-to-five job at a desk. It just means you cannot be idle in your six days. You have a day. That day is now, right? The Lord's day. You have the day to rest. He has given it to you. He says, freely enjoy the day I've given to you. It's yours. I've given it to you, O man. But work hard. And so one of the ways that we steal that is very difficult to see and determine is that we do not think consciously all the time that every moment belongs to not ourselves but to God. And so we thieve from God much of our days. We steal from Him minutes and hours because we do not think what would our boss, our God, have us be doing. It doesn't even enter our minds. We don't think about it. We just go about our day. We get done, we finish up, we go to bed, get up the next day, we do the same stuff we've always done. And never does the thought enter our minds. Today's the Lord's day. Because it is His day. Because He owns it. What should I be doing that my master might be pleased? What should I be doing that my master's business might grow? And what is our master's business? That the whole world might know him. That his glory might go to the ends of the earth. We often think about thieving, stealing, as physically taking something out from someone else. And that is theft. But many of us, having been Christians for some time, are probably not going to be caught at Walmart stealing a big screen TV. Just a hunch But I have a feeling I am not going to have to turn you over to the prosecutor in our midst for that. Because we have some constraints, some moral constraints, some civil constraints. But lots of people, lots of people end the day by thinking, well, I did not steal today because I didn't go down to Walmart and steal a big screen TV. The Christian conscience grows as you put on the new man. To realize that theft is much more than stealing a TV from Walmart. From embezzling millions from some guy. Theft is a deep, deep thing. This past Friday, the largest, second largest bank failure in the United States happened. Uh, Silicon Valley Bank. I forget exactly how many billions, 300 billion or some ridiculous number. I'm not really sure. So the question the Christian should ask is not, how is this going to affect my bottom line? Is the market going to collapse? Are we all going to go in? Nope. Silicon Valley Bank was making absurd profits with unsecured monies 
And why did they get so many people to invest in their unsecured monies in Silicon Bank? Why did other people put their money in the Silicon Valley Bank? Because they thought they could earn a quick dollar at Silicon Valley Bank. And they did not care at what expense it might come. So now I think, okay, so this occurs to me. I'm getting ready to preach this sermon. I'm thinking about Silicon Valley Bank. And I'm thinking about my own banking. Why do I choose to do the banking I do? And it occurs to me, I've never once thought that the banking I do matters in regards to theft. That there are, in fact, known institutions that make their money in bad ways. Some of you know some of these things. Some of, many of us don't because we're not privy to the private movings of banks. But here is a way in which banks made bad money that I knew about years ago, 15 years ago, in the banking industry. There are these things called appraisals. Appraisals have to be done when you sell and buy real estate. Now, theoretically, 15 years ago, there were lots of rules to regulate appraisals for banks. But they weren't followed, they were not enforced, and nobody cared. And so one of the ways that banks made more money before the crash of 2008 was this. They would find the the appraiser who would hit the number that they wanted to hit. And then they would realize this appraiser over here was unwilling to hit that number. And they were supposed to give out their appraisal work evenly amongst all appraisers. But before 2008, that didn't happen. I know this personally because a man very dear to my heart is an appraiser. And his business doubled after 2008 because he was an honest appraiser. And I happen to know one of the banks that didn't use my dad very often as an appraiser. And it occurred to me this past weekend that I have never once thought of it as theft. And the fact that I have gained money from their theft. Not once has it occurred to me. But it has occurred to me now. These are the things that God would have you do when you read things like, let the thief no longer steal. He doesn't want you to read that and think, oh, the guy who stole the TV or the guy who stole the billions or this or that guy. He wants you to look at you and go, is there a place where I steal? And he can do all kinds of things to open your eyes, like have a bank failure clear across the country, of which I have no money and no vested interest in what happens to those banking dollars. But then it began to occur to me that I do have bank dollars, and they do matter where I put them. Because I know of unscrupulous practices. And if I know about it and willfully invest, I am participating in schemes to make unlawful money. This happens in all kinds of ways. This is lottery, this is gambling, this is all sorts of things that we want to ignore and yet are very clear. So this is the first step, right? Examining ourselves. Do we steal? And the second part 
Are we willing to call work good and to work hard honestly with our hands? It's very hard to do. We want the easy, quick dollar. We want the fast, the fast money. The reality is, well, where's that? Proverbs thirteen eleven: Wealth gained hastily will dwindle, but whoever gathers little by little will increase it. Fast money, easy money, quick money, not working for money is bad money. It's theft. So we ought to work hard. We ought to love work. It should be our delight. Now, I realize I'm talking to a lot of people who are retired. What is your well, it's different than it was 20, 30 years ago. You're not putting in your 9 to 5 anymore. You're not filing papers or whatever you did for your job. But you still have work to do because the king is still on his throne and it all belongs to him. And so what is your work? Well, prayer, love, good works, pondering what it would mean to stir up your brother or sister. This is how... The author of Hebrews puts it. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. You think, well, what does that mean? Later on, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. One of the works, if you have no particular job, is to work to ensure that those around you don't fall to the disobedience that leads to hell. That comes through prayer, that comes through words, that comes through encouragement, that comes through thinking about the problem that lies before us. Work hard. Work hard at the things God has for you, whatever stage of life you're in. My children too young for jobs, legally. Unless I start a corporation, apparently, and they own the business, then they can work as much as they want, I think. Um, So I'm thinking about that. But my children still have to work hard. And so my wife trains them. To work hard. Sweep and mop the floor. Clean off the table. Wash the bathrooms. Clean the toilets. Do your laundry. Work hard. Because work is good. But then again, I've said that the difference between all of these two things and the Christian is in this third part. In order that you might have something to give. So all of these things are good and right and proper. We ought to think about how we are thieves. We ought to think about how we can work hard. But here is the crux, the point, the pivot that makes it impossible to fulfill this. And it's that we have to work and think and not steal in such a way that none of it is about us. How important is this in Scripture? Well, it's vitally important. I'm going to read to you several passages from 2 Corinthians. 
We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Later in that same passage, I don't mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. The point is this, still in 2 Corinthians. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that you have all sufficiency in all things at all times, and so that you may abound in every good work. As it is written, God has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of the service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. How important is the final peace for the Christian it's vitally important. It is the distinguishing mark between the hard-working pagan who saves for himself and the Christian who knows that all things are from God's hand and nothing belongs to him, and so therefore he can freely distribute. I was talking with the Nolans this past week about a man named George Mueller who prayed each week that God would provide for him for his orphanages in Britain. Then I was talking about this other woman who I've recently met. Um, her name is Lori DeVillis. She is the starter of the Trotter House Pregnancy Centers, which we're partnering with here in town. And Lori is an example of this sort of thing. Uh, she works hard all the time all the time, freely giving herself to the work, not asking for anything. She's given us dozens of hours here in Jasper. We have not paid her a dime. And she prays earnestly that God will provide. And she does miraculous, miraculous, she has testimony of miraculous answers to prayer. For instance, in Texas, where many of the pregnancy centers she started were at, she was there, they had not quite opened. They didn't have a lot of things ready. And a woman showed up at the door of the pregnancy center and needed formula for a bottle. They had zero. So Lori gathers the two or three people who were there, and she says, we have to pray that God would supply this thing and whether or not we should drive down the road and how much money we have. And So they begin to pray, and then within seconds, a van pulls up, 
complete, totally filled pallets of formula. That's wild. Two years ago, Lori was back in Evansville where she was born and raised to take care of her mother. And she began to pray about things and she heard about the desire and need for a mobile pregnancy unit. So she began to pray. And she had been told by the person wanting this that it would cost at least $150,000 for this pregnancy center, this mobile pregnancy center. So she's praying the next day. She bumps into a guy. She tells him and the guy says, where do I write the check? $150,000. None of it for her. None of it for her. This is godliness. This is the new man that is impossible without the Spirit. To be that sort of generous with monies is impossible. We know this because many, many non-for-profits become corrupt as they gain money because the people working there realize there's money and they can get more of it if they just pay themselves more and they become corrupt over time. This happens all the time. This happens with Christian ministries, right? This is... How Christian ministries often go bad. I'm not going to name anybody particularly, but some of the most well-known Christian authors. Godly men. Men who have written books that I have found helpful, preached sermons that are wonderful, godly, have become multi-millionaires. Multi-millionaires as preachers of the gospel. Now, this is dangerous times to be saying this, but it seems to me quite clear that an ambassador of God ought not to become rich in this world. Seems fairly self-evident. Now, if that's true of the man of God, the pastor, perhaps... There is something to be said for the rest of us. And Jesus says many things about it. Many things. Among them, the man who runs out of storage for the barns that he has. And he builds bigger barns. And Jesus says, you fool. This night, your soul is required of you. Therefore, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust will not destroy this sort of miraculous heart level givingness of work and profit and money is only achievable by the Spirit of God. It's only achievable by the Spirit of God. Many men pretend to it. Pretend to it. Right? So you have people who claim extravagant giving. It's been my experience that many men who proclaim extravagant giving are in fact quite tight. And it is very often the people who you think very least of who are the givers. My grandpa was one of those men. I've talked about him often. He would be perhaps quite upset with me that I talk about him so often in this manner. But he is an example to me of this. He realized at some point, I don't know when, that the monies he had were not his. 
And he gave them all away. Gave them all away. Just gave it away. I just couldn't believe it. I mean, I still, 15 years later, it's still astounding to me what that man did. Just check after check after check after check. Something happened that was not natural. Not normal. It was Christian. It was new man. This is what we have in Christ. We not only have to examine ourselves to see where we might be sinning with theft, we not only ought to work hard, hard, and enjoy work and love work, but we ought to be eager, happy, generous giving, honest giving. And that is the work of the Spirit upon the heart of a man. It does not come by naturally. And so we ought to, at the same time that we're doing these things, ought to pray that God makes us more so. That He does not leave us in our old state. That was content to be mostly outwardly passable as a Christian. But that God would work within us to be outlandishly generous, like the Macedonians. They overflowed in their extreme poverty with generosity. That's a weird, that's a weird thing. And that's just equate, that just can be given over to God, making them new men. New men, not old. So then, for us, examine yourself. When opportunity comes for you to see where you may have been thieving, confess it. Ask for forgiveness. Move on. Work hard. Don't be lazy. Don't give your time to idleness. But think. and Use your time wisely as the Lord would have you. And then think of others. The final word I have for us is just Scripture. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Have this mind among yourselves. I'm going to pray and then we'll sing together our final hymn. If you'd stand while I pray. Father, we are very glad for your word. We ask, Father, that it would teach us this morning. That it would be helpful to us. We pray, Father, that we would leave changed by the power of your spirit into new men and women. To do your work to work hard, to love to work, and to be generous beyond generosity, beyond anything reasonable, just as you were generous behind, beyond anything reasonable, giving yourself for us. We pray, Father, that generosity would be the mark of ourselves and the people here who love God, 
that we would be called out as those who gave beyond their means and you supplied every single one of us. We pray, Father, that your glory and your might and your power would be on display here in Jasper. In Christ's good name, amen.